All right, if you will turn to Ecclesiastes 3, we're going to start at verse 16. Uh, You may have noticed our confession today was largely drawn from Ecclesiastes, if you've been going through this book with us. And if you haven't, you probably thought, man, this is really a dark and depressing confession. So welcome to Ecclesiastes. Uh, One of the frustrating aspects to living this life is that everything doesn't necessarily move forward or progress. Um, Not everything is an improvement. And so we say things like, life can be a roller coaster, and it's filled with ups and downs, and then flattens out for a bit, and then ups and downs, and, and it continues on. Or we say things like, two steps forward and one step back. Uh, we find progress and we, we feel like we're moving forward and we're getting somewhere, but before too long we feel like we're almost back to where we began. Or we say we had a moment of clarity. We don't ever say we arrived at clarity, like once and for all. No, we had a moment and we briefly saw things for what they were and felt like there was some satisfaction in it, but it doesn't last Perhaps there are some lasting effects to it, for sure, but we don't stay in that bright and satisfying clarity for long. And as Christians, we are not totally immune from this. Of course, we try to live this life in in the lens and through the lens of God's Word and God's presence and God's truth, Um, and that certainly makes a big difference. It does, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't smooth out everything. It doesn't mean we're always progressing one step forward and we never move back. It doesn't mean we always see things with perfect clarity. We have seasons of of highs and and joys and great confidence and clarity, and then we have seasons of, of lows and sorrows and chaos and confusion. And just the layout of the book of Ecclesiastes confronts us with this. So you might think that, you know, we've been in it for three weeks now. You might think, well, it's been kind of dark and depressing so far, but surely it's an upward, upward uh, um, positive way from here on out. Well, that's not the case. Um, it, it doesn't really work like that. It's not a sequential book. You get moments of clarity and hope, like we considered last week. You get these expanded vistas of God's beauty and truth um, peering in, but then it quickly gets dark and confusing again. And we'll especially see that in the section of verses we're going to cover today. Uh, The author is going to begin with another observation of the vanity of life, um, of particular vanity of life. Uh, Then he's going to move somewhat hopeful, and we'll get a couple consolations or explanations of, well, here's how you can kind of make sense of this. And and they're good, and they're true. But then he, he... quickly turns dark again, returns to the, this vanity of life, and then he ends on a really, really dark note. And he just says, well, it's probably best that you just weren't born at all. And then he changes subjects. Like, doesn't wrap it up, uh, just moves on. No satisfying solution. Of course, the point is not that we should ultimately end where he does today, not the end of the book. It's certainly not the end of the biblical story. But the fact that he doesn't tie everything up right away is telling. Um, It's probably not all too different 
from what, our, what it would look like if we were writing a journal day by day and spilling out all of our thoughts and emotions and experiences of life. Two steps forward, one step back. Clarity and then, well, I'm not sure I really understood that as well as I thought. Clouds of uncertainty and confusion. But even in this kind of pattern, we can see God's grace because we, we're reminded that God knows what this life is like. In, in the book of Ecclesiastes, God is reminding us that he knows what life in this world is like. He understands us, and he's inviting us to come to him with our, like we did in our confession, with our frustrations and our toil and feelings of despair and hopelessness. So just keep that kind of flow in mind as we go through this today. Um, we will, get, we will end up on a positive note, even though he does not, even though the author does not. Okay, so we'll start in 3.16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. Uh, a few chapters later in chapter 8, he says something similar. He says, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So the particular vanity or meaninglessness that he's considering here is that life is unfair, particularly on the, the moral ethical um, spectrum. Uh, life is not fair. Life is not just there is justice where there, there is injustice where there should be justice. There is unrighteousness where there should be righteousness. It's confusing. And he, here and elsewhere through this book, he notes uh, several examples of this, and we see these today as well. So, for example, the righteous people often find, often find suffering and, and they perish, and the wicked people often find success and long life. Shouldn't it be the opposite? Right? If, if, this, if, if this is God's world, this is a world ruled by a good and all-sovereign God, shouldn't it be the opposite? Additionally, there aren't always immediate consequences for acting wickedly and doing wicked things. And so sometimes it can seem worth it. You can even find success in doing what is evil. And then, as we'll see later in today's passage, there's often no one to comfort the, the oppressed and the suffering. There's wicked, rich, powerful people who use others to their own gain, and there is no one to, to comfort and come alongside the suffering. Now, sections of Ecclesiastes like this are, are kind of like an anti-proverb, right? Biblical proverbs and proverbs in general, uh, they... What they do is they state a general truth about life that is usually the case. So wisdom is better than foolishness. Living righteously leads to better ends than living unrighteously. Wickedness leads to death and chaos and despair and all of this. We have these Proverbs in the book of Proverbs and throughout the Bible. What Ecclesiastes often does is point out that this is not always the case, at least now, at least temporarily. 
sometimes it seems the opposite is true. Now, this doesn't mean the Proverbs are not good and helpful and true. We should still hold on to them. This, they are God's truth. They are how the world usually works. But it does mean that life, and it reminds us that life in a fallen, sinful world is often complex and not as straightforward and easily solvable as we would like. You know, we can't just kind of game the system and be like, well, if I do this and this and this, then I'm going to get this result and this result and this result and figure out how to game God. And we all know and feel what the author is saying here. No matter who we are, no matter what we believe, no matter what religion we adhere to, we know that life is unfair. In ways that we can't ultimately solve. Through, through thousand years of human existence, we haven't been able to solve this problem. The unfairness, the injustice, the oppression of life. Um, education hasn't done it and will not do it. Politics hasn't done it. Pumping money into the system hasn't done it. Reasoning with people, I'm not sure if you realized, doesn't always work. That doesn't mean there's no place for these things. There, there, there is, but we should be realistic and tempered in our expectations. And this rubs at us on a personal level, too. Um, the, the, the words of Psalm 73 are, are some of the most comforting in Scripture. Uh, let me read a few verses and see if you resonate with these. Truly God is good to Israel, that is his people. God is good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So even before looking out at other people and seeing what's going on out there, living for God can be difficult. It's called the narrow path. It's not the path you just kind of stumble upon and then it's easy from then on out. It, it means submitting to God and submitting your will and desires to, to His and confessing your sin. It's good. It's full of joy, but... It's not necessarily easy. And then you, we, on top of that, we look out and we see all these other people with no cares in the world, no fear of God, doing whatever their heart leads them to do, living only for themselves. And it seems like they often get away with it and find success and pleasure and happiness. And we cry, no fair. It's not just, it's not right, it's evil. but it's not the end of the story. It's not the last word. And so the author then considers what consolation, what explanation there might be in this situation. Verse 17 says, I said in my heart, so he's kind of reasoning with himself, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And then if you know the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, this is how it ends as well. For God will bring every deed into judgment 
with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The big idea is that God will bring perfect and satisfying justice to all of life. Um, if you noticed, he uses the phrase, a time for every matter, right? Which he had used, we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 3. And so what he's saying is that every time and season of life that comes at us, all of that list in verses 2 through 8, being born and dying, breaking down and building up, weeping, laughing, mourning and dancing, love and hate, war and peace, all of these things and everything in between, all of life, none of it will escape the perfect and satisfying just judgment of God. And this is part of the reason that God can and is making everything beautiful in its time, as we saw last week as well. If we, if, if we don't see this, if we only see what is before us, only see what we are immediately experiencing right now, much of life will seem unfair, unjust, vanity. But if we back out and consider that there is a perfect and objective and satisfying end, it, all things will be brought into the light and held accountable, and God will get the last word, and he is good, and that changes things immensely. There, there are a couple reasons, at least two reasons, why final judgment and a belief in final judgment matters so much. The first is that it gives meaning to life. It gives meaning to life. If, evil, it will, if doing evil will ultimately bring about the same result as doing good, if seeking God will ultimately bring about the same result as ignoring God, then it really doesn't matter how you live. You, you can be kind and loving or you can be mean and hateful. You can be honest or dishonest. You can see others as valuable image bearers of God and treat them with dignity or you can use them and abuse them to your own ends. And in the end, it won't really matter. Of course, there are many other reasons that you might choose to do good. Uh, you might choose to do good because it makes others like you more, makes others respect you more, makes you feel good, gives you something in return, all of which are ultimately selfish reasons. But even then, who's to say that what we are doing is actually good objectively? if there's no objective final pronouncement in the end. Uh, lots of people throughout history have convinced themselves that they are doing what is good and right and just, and in reality, what they were doing was committing horrible atrocities. Like We can't really trust our own judgment in the end. If that's all we have to go on is just to trust our judgment of what is good or others' judgment of what is good, we're, we're in a horribly unsatisfying spot. And so if there is no final, objective, perfect judgment, life is vain. Sacrifices you make for a good cause ultimately don't matter. Suffering for righteousness' sake ultimately doesn't matter. There's, there's not motivation sufficient to love God and love others. One commentator writes, If death means that all is over and there is nothing more, it is life which is pervaded with tragic irrationality. It doesn't make sense. 
every column in the great human book adds up to precisely the same result, zero. But if we are guaranteed that right is better than wrong, that living for God is better than living in rejection of God, that doing good is better than doing evil, and that the end will satisfy this, vindicate this, prove that this is the case, no matter how it may seem now, then life has meaning. How we live before God matters and has meaning, and how we live with and before others matters and has meaning. And then a second reason, final judgment, and the belief in final judgment is so important is that it keeps us from taking judgment into our own hands, right? If we can't ultimately trust God to bring a just and satisfying judgment and to vindicate righteousness, we will either live in despair and bitterness or we will take measures into our own hands to ensure that there is justice, which never goes well. In all of the cases where the world's systems can't or don't bring a satisfying conclusion, don't bring sufficient justice or they get it wrong, we will be compelled to take matters into our own hands. Whenever somebody wrongs us, forgets about us, hurts those we love, slanders us, gets something that we want, has the life that we want, isn't friendly with us, we will and we feel that we must do something about it. We must bring justice. It would be wrong not to, right? The world demands justice. And if no one else is going to do it, then we need to do it. This is why bitterness and revenge can often feel so righteous. If you just call it justice, well, you can excuse and justify pretty much anything. But if justice is guaranteed in a satisfying way, in an objectively right way, with or without us, that changes things. That changes both our hearts and how we feel towards people and how we act towards people. Yes, there are times and ways to seek justice now. There is a place for the legal system and the justice system and governing authorities and law enforcement and all of that. The point isn't that we don't care about evil and we just kind of sit idly back. The point is that we can seek ways to bring about justice in where we have opportunity now without turning to revenge and bitterness, and, but in the end, ultimately trust God to do what is right, where we do not have the power to. This topic of God's judgment is not one that the world likes to talk about much, but in reality it's one that if done away with, robs life of meaning and introduces much injustice and violence into the world. The author continues on and considers a second consolation or explanation for the unfairness of life. And just to point out up front, this one is tinged with, it is, it is a very resigned consolation, uh, tinged with the vanity and frustration of life that we've come to expect from 
Ecclesiastes. So starting at verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. That's the good news. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast, the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than the man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Now, this can be a more difficult section, uh, but notice that it does begin on a somewhat positive note. What can we say in response to the unfairness and injustice in life? And the first answer there in, in verse 18 is that through this, God is teaching us something. God is teaching us something that is true, that has some truth to it, and there is some good outcome, positive uh, effect of acknowledging this. God is showing us our frailty and our capacity for wickedness. That we are, at least in a sense, just like the beasts. Think about it. As we experience the evil and injustices in this world propagated by mankind, and as we look in our own hearts and know the ca our own capabilities for evil and injustice, and to harm one another, we have our grand illusions of greatness and lasting significance and God-likeness punctured. We, like beasts, live for ourselves. We seek what we need to protect ourselves and care for ourselves. As Paul confesses, what a wretched man I am. And then like beasts as well, we die and our bodies go into the ground. We are from the dust and return to the dust. And this is, of course, of an, uh, a reference to Genesis 3. And sin and the, the fall into sin. In other words, as we go through life, there is so much that reminds us that we are frail and that we are not, uh, reminds us of our capacity for evil and reminds us that we are not God. So if you put all of this together, as you, as you look out and observe the world and you observe your own hearts and you see the injustice that we can't ultimately solve, we are both humbled, made to realize that are we really much better than beasts? Now, the biblical story says we are, yes, but in some sense, are we really as great as we think we are? And then also this realization compels us to hope and trust in God and his ability to fix and to bring a satisfying conclusion to all of this. So that's the clarity that we get in today's passage. It doesn't last long. The author continues down this train of thought about being like beasts, and he seems to feel like that's the end of the matter. He says, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth? Or who can bring him to see what will be after him? 
Now, if you back out and consider the testimony of Scripture, there are clear answers to these questions. Well, God does. God knows. Yes, we are more than and more valuable than beasts. We have a position with God that is created in His image, different than animals. So this is not the full picture. This is not the end of the matter. Christianity is not ultimately pessimistic and hopeless and despairing. But we have it here because this can be our vision at times, right? This can be our experience. This can be our limited vision of life. We can believe in God and that living for him is good and will be vindicated in the end. But not necessarily always live in the grips of that reality. Not have that clarity at all, at all times. And perhaps sometimes in those moments we, we find ourselves going to where the author goes next in the last verses we'll look at here in chapter 4. And so he returns to the same theme. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and hasn't seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is the ultimate pessimistic conclusion. In light of all of the vanities and injustices and unfairness of life, if that is really the last word on life, well, it's better that we were just not born. It's not worth it. And we can kind of chuckle at how dark this is, but if statistics tell us anything, this is still how people feel. Many people feel in our day. And perhaps you have found yourself feeling this or pondering this. Perhaps in light of the overwhelming injustices and evils and oppressions that out, that's out there in the world that you ultimately have very little control over, if any. Perhaps in light of very specific and personal evils that have been done to you, that there is no satisfying solution or just solution to. Or perhaps even in light of the ways that you have sinned and been unjust to others and in the, under the weight of shame and guilt in your own heart. You intimately know that life is unfair because you have been unfair. And so we wonder, is life even worth it? Well, as I said at the beginning, the author gets there and then changes subjects. But this is not the end of the story. So where do we go from here? Well, as we step back and consider all of this in light of the whole story that God has given us, consider a couple things. God doesn't give us all the answers to the, our problems and questions in this life. He doesn't come to us and just say, hey, let's sit down. We're going to have a talk 
I'm going to give you an answer. I'm going to give you a satisfying answer to all of your problems and difficulties and questions. Um, just listen to me, and I'm going to explain it all. Well, he doesn't give us that. But what he does give us is so much better. And he gives us himself. He reveals what he is like. Again and again, over and over again, he reveals that he is good, that he is providentially ruling over all things, as we saw last week. Nothing is outside of his control. The end is in his hands. Nothing is really meaningless or chaotic. God is working it all for good. He has shown us his heart, his character, and his will. He's made us great and precious promises. He's shown us that we can trust him, that we can rest in him. He is compassionate and gentle and lowly and delights in all who come to him. So no matter what we feel or experience in this life, we can cling to these truths about God. We don't merely have an explanation to help us cope with life. We have the person of Jesus, God in the flesh, with us, for us, leading the way for us. But then secondly, and relatedly, while God hasn't fully explained all of the injustices in our, in our world and in our lives, he has experienced them himself. The greatest injustice in the world happened to Jesus, God in the flesh. You know, going back to the language in the beginning of our passage here, if there was ever a time when wickedness sat in the place of injustice, where unrighteousness sat in the place of righteousness, it was on the cross. If there was ever someone who had the right to cry out, unfair, in, unjust, this is evil, it was Jesus on the cross. This was injustice of the highest order. And in that moment, God didn't immediately step in and just comfort Jesus, comfort the oppressed, bring the, his murderers to task and bring them judgment. Just as the author laments that there's no one to comfort the oppressed, Jesus was oppressed and had no one to or who could actually comfort him. Uh, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah spoke about this, when he said, he, Jesus, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And this was God's plan from the beginning. The, the one perfect being who alone deserved no harm or hatred or evil or injustice took the full extent of evil and injustice and oppression on himself. And not just the evil out there in the world. It, there will be a judgment for all of the evil that out there in the world, for all who finally and consistently refuse to come to God. There will be judgment for that. But in Jesus, we, all of us who come to God in faith in his grace, had our judgment take place once and for all. Jesus, we are told, didn't come to judge the world, but to secure salvation for the world. He didn't come to leave us in our sin and guilt and despair, but sufficiently deal with them in a satisfying way, satisfy all the demands of justice, make a full and eternal peace with us in order to be, 
be with us and make us his own. And because of this, because of his death and resurrection, conquering sin, death, and hell, we don't just return to dust or be worse and cast from his presence. We will be raised, body and soul, to new life, glorious life with him. The grave doesn't have the last word. Our despair about death doesn't have the last word. We are not just like the beasts. The sin of others against us doesn't have the last word. Our own sin against others doesn't have the last word. The cross for all those who come to Christ has the last word. Which means that in the end, there is vindication. That vindication means a the confirmation of being right and just in all things. There is vindication for God and there is vindication for all that he's done and for all who call on him. It will be shown to be good and right in the end. No matter how, the op- how much the opposite may s- appear to be the case now. No matter how much it may seem that the wicked now thrive and get away with it or that right, living for God and sacrificing and serving him and others is, isn't worth it. It will be worth it in the end. And having that confidence now and that hope now and continuing to cling to that and go back to that radically changes how we live now. Let's pray.